This message was recorded at Devoted, a Christ Central Festival for all the family. To find out more about Devoted, please visit devotedevent.org. I want to introduce our special guests, Andrew and Rachel Wilson, to you. I've known uh, Rachel, actually, we were just working it out. Uh, I've known Rachel since uh, 1988. When you were mum and dad, they were church planters with us and Don Smith as we planted the Eastbourne Church. And then Andrew and Rachel have been serving in Eastbourne for many years, strengthening that great church there on the south coast. And more recently, Andrew has moved to be with Steve Tibbet in London in King's Church. Andrew is one of those people who represents new frontiers on the wider world. We feel that he has a voice for New Frontiers, and we feel that together they've got something very special to say to us. Just before they do, I want to again recommend the books that we've been talking about, Echoes of Eden, uh, sorry, Echo, Echoes of Exodus, I've renamed it, Echoes of Exodus. Again, I, like we said the other night, this is one of the best books I've read this year. It's in my top three this year, and I found it inspiring to see the story of Exodus right the way from Eden, that's what I was going to say, to Revelation, right the way through the Bible. And if you look on page 94, you will find a particular reference that I used last night, but didn't credit to Andrew. I'm crediting him now. <laughs> it's got you intrigued, doesn't it? You'll buy it. Also last night, we talked about David and David getting hold of the promises of God, David using the promises of God. He said to Goliath, you come against me. I'm not preaching again, don't worry. You come against me with, uh, with javelin, with spear and sword, but I come against you in the name of the Lord. Now, we said we've got to understand who God is. We're looking at the wrong thing. We need to have a bigger picture of who God is, who he's named himself, who he is. If you want to study that, and if you want to look that, if you want to get some stones for your slings to sling against Goliath, then I highly recommend, and I never know whether we should say incomparable or incomparable, because I am not an English person. Andrew will correct that. There's a lot of uh, concern about how we say that, but it's explorations into the character of God, who God is. And I recommend this highly. It's a, not a new book. It's been around a few years. But if you want to freshly look at who God is and who he is for us, for the people of God, then I recommend that book. And finally, the book, as I've said many times before, two or three years old now, but the book that made me both laugh and cry, which was slightly embarrassing because I was reading it on a plane to Canada. And I think the person next to me thought, you're really weird. You're laughing at this book and you're crying at the same time. That's absolutely true. This book by Andrew and Rachel together has really impacted many in this room. I know there's a special guest from Canada who's only come along uh, to this event because she was stirred that Andrew and Rachel were here. And she said, I've given that book so many to so many of my friends. I've just given it away, given it away. Most, all of them non-Christian friends. I've given it away. Given. It's just a magnificent book. When you are going through troubles and difficulties, and I'm sure none of us ever do, but when you do go through troubles and difficulties, knowing the grace and sovereignty and mercy and love of God, showing up not in spite of troubles, but through troubles and through trials and through difficulties, really this is the inspiration for us inviting Andrew and Rachel 
to share their story tonight. So dear friends, why don't we welcome our dear friends, Andrew and Rachel Wilson. It is so good to be here this evening. We're so happy to be here. And actually, I feel like camping this weekend, I should be applauding you from the stage because I think that is the harder thing. There might be some mums in the corner here with camping with toddlers, and I think that's, uh, that might be the harder thing this weekend. It's really good to be with you. And actually, I feel like camping has some relevance to what we want to talk to you about this evening. I'm going to talk first, and, uh, and then I'm going to hand over to Andrew because we're going to be looking tonight at Jesus as the storyteller, Jesus as the author, the perfecter, the narrator of all things, the one whose narrative, whose story makes sense of everything and is better than what the one sometimes we would like to tell. If you've got a Bible with you, we're going to be looking at Hebrews 12. Uh, but first, I think camping's relevant because almost nothing requires a strong narrative as much as a camping holiday, doesn't it? Perhaps even a spin doctor is required for a camping holiday. Yes, it was hard when the wee bucket was knocked over in the middle of the night and six people's urine spread across the tarpaulin. But if it hadn't happened, we wouldn't have found that lost earring. You need a strong narrative, a strong narrative to a camping holiday. So I'm, I'm married to a really glass-half-full narrator of all things, commentator of all things, and he is continually describing events in a way in which I do not recognize, despite the fact that I was there. <laughs> and uh, after, la after last year's Christmas, holiday, ho Christmas holidays, I had to stop Andrew because I kept overhearing him saying to people, it was a triumph against the odds. It didn't look like it was going to go well, but in the end, it was this wonderful Christmas break. And over the course of that two-week Christmas break, um, our boiler had broken in freezing, snowy temperatures. Four of us had had horrendous DNV, and due to a pram brake being left off, I'm not going to mention by who, an eight-month-old had an experience of falling into a frozen lake only to be rescued by two fully clothed adults. And I just felt that even the Alistair Campbell-esque skills of Andrew Wilson could not resolve this as a good Christmas break. Um, the baby's fine, by the way. And luckily, at eight months, I'm hoping he wasn't old enough to form long-term memories or phobias. But that desire, actually, to make sense of all things and to tell a story that resolves into a happy ending is actually common to all of us, whether or not we do it in a glass half full way or in a glass half empty way. Because all of us are living in a story, aren't we? Made up of days, weeks, months, and years, highs and lows. And our lives have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And on some days, our lives feel like a tragedy. And on other days, they feel like a comedy. And our stories as individuals or families interact with and form part of a much bigger story, a much larger and more important story about the church, about the kingdom of God, and about the redemption of all things. We are all storied 
creatures, and we make sense of our world by, um, by, telling, by telling them the stories. But the problem is, is that we're not the author. We are characters, aren't we? We're not in control. We can't always cast ourselves as the hero. And we would love to be in a position to write roles for ourselves, but we are participants. We are characters, not the storyteller. And sometimes, in fact often, that means the story doesn't go the way that we may have wanted, expected, may have planned for, may have prepared for. At the moment, we're, um, we're working our way through Friends on Netflix, and uh, there's a bit where Joey is playing a character in a soap opera. He's Dr. Drake Ramore, and he is horrified to turn up only to find that his character dies by falling down an elevator shaft. And like Joey, we enter the studio with an ideal script in our minds. We enter the studio prepared. We're looking forward to our lines, and we've learnt them. And then reality deviates it, and we find that we're improvising, often badly, sometimes spectacularly. And sometimes those deviations can be funny. One day, I will learn to laugh about Sam's Christmas Eve trip into the Crawley Lake. Um, sometimes they can be funny. Sometimes they can be less funny. Sometimes be really painful. A parent develops early onset dementia requiring a lot of care. A spouse betrays us. A false accusation is made. And your life story might have been like that. You might have imagined that certain scenes would play out in a particular way and been convinced that your character would do this or this, only to find yourself unexpectedly pregnant like Mary or deported to a foreign city like Daniel, or marrying a prostitute like Hosea, or just falling down your own unique elevator shaft. And for you, that could, be, that could be a divorce, that could be infertility, a bereavement, a redundancy. It could be an unexpected failure, one moment of weakness, a disability. And in our case, as you might know, we've, um, well, when, we've actually, when we wrote the book, we had two children. We now have three children, the third one being the one that was strapped into the pram, the lucky boy. And, uh, and I think when you have, we use the illustration in the book that um, when we had children, it felt a little bit like we were at a dinner party and everybody was being handed out their desserts and uh, everyone around us was handed this uh, beautiful wrapped up parcel and inside was a chocolate orange. So we, having children, unwrapped our parcels expecting, not because we thought we deserved it, but expecting just what the, all of our friends around us had been given. And really, as our first child hit two and, a half, two and a half, we started to realize that the script that we thought we were entering, the studio we thought we were entering, was in fact going to be a very different story. As our first child, um, as our first child at the age of two and a half, went through a period of developmental regression, losing his speech, his skills, many abilities, um, language, motor skills, all started to deteriorate. And we suddenly realized, hang on, this isn't the script that we'd prepared for. This is something completely different. Only for our second child at two and a half, for exactly the same thing to happen, only much more severely. As by three, they'd both been diagnosed with severe autism. 
our daughter with epilepsy and our son with ADHD. And those first few years were really painful. And God had given us a good gift because inside of our wrapped up parcel was an actual orange. And oranges are full of vitamin C and they are juicy and they are delicious. But the experience that we were going through was very different to everyone else on our table, all of our friends. We knew other people who had one child with autism, so we just about got our head around that, only to find that our second child also had severe autism um, with many more challenges. We quickly realized that we have not planned, we have not prepared. These were not the lines that we have learned, and we're improvising often badly. Well, Hebrews 12, if you've got there in your Bibles, is written to a group of believers whose story had not turned out the way they'd expected. They were being opposed, they were shamed, they were ostracized, and some of them had been thrown in prison or had property confiscated to the extent that they were considering giving up altogether. They didn't think this was the church they'd signed up for. And Hebrews as a whole is so encouraging to me. It's written both to encourage them, but also to confront them and to get them to keep going. And as the letter builds towards its conclusion, can we read together Hebrews 12, verse 1? It should come up on the screen. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart." And it's fascinating, isn't it, to this group of people who are living a life that perhaps they hadn't signed up for. Jesus is reminded he is the author, he is the perfecter of their faith. And in your Bible, your translation might be slightly different. It might say Jesus as the founder, Jesus as the originator, Jesus as the one who cooked the whole thing up. He was there at the beginning of the story. He will be there at the end, and Jesus will bring the story to completion. Perfecter here has a sense of bringing to fullness, resolving, carrying to its final destination. We don't take it there. He does. He is the person responsible for shaping our ups and downs into a meaningful narrative. It's not you. It's not me. It's the one who starts and ends the story. It's the author, the founder. He's the perfecter. He's the alpha. He's the omega. I don't have to make sense of what is happening at home right now. I don't have to make sense. It can be confusing. I can be in the middle of it. I cannot understand it because he is writing a good story. Somehow he is. He is the author and the perfecter, and he will carry it through to the conclusion. He is the storyteller and not me. This is the point at which you realize your notes are in the wrong order. Yep, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you very much. But I, I don't know about you. I find that hard. I like to be in control. If you were in my kitchen right now, my daughter's at home with a respite worker, and I have written an essay 
And at the end, I've written, P.S., I am not a control freak. <laughs> because I like to be in control. I like to resolve the story. I like to narrate what's going on and bring a happy ending or make myself the hero. And I don't know about you, I'd really love a testimony that I could have ready for next Sunday morning, bring to the microphone my eureka moment. This is why this has all happened. But actually, we're still living in the middle of it. In fact, some of you might, maybe some of you have read the book, and uh, it's a temptation even today to stand up and say, it's all right, this is what happened, this is what's happened. And we've seen wonderful triumphs with our kids. Our oldest son has just come on enormously. And, uh, and is able to, we're able to talk to him, we're able to engage with him. He's able to read, we've joked together in ways that we thought we were told would never be possible. But there's been heartbreaks, there's still daily heartbreaks. With our daughter, things have been much more challenging than we ever could have anticipated. And right now we have a two-year-old who's approaching two and a half. And I'm really aware that I'm standing here today telling you that he is the storyteller and that he's trustworthy but I, we've got to go home and live that for the next six months and go, whatever you've written, we'll walk in what you've prepared for us. And that's hard, isn't it? It's hard to trust him as a good storyteller. It's hard to trust him that his is better than what I might have written. There's a temptation in us, isn't there, to redeem it, to make it worthwhile. And so we start support groups, we fundraise, uh, we raise awareness, even in writing a book. All of these are brilliant things, aren't they? But ultimately, they don't outweigh the pain yet. They don't. They don't outweigh the pain yet. And that's okay, because I can't do that. He is the one that's going to do that. That's what I'm trusting him to do. I don't have to redeem this story. He is doing that in the redemption of all things. God knows that I'm like that, and he knows that you're like that. And he knows that the Hebrews were like that as well. In fact, lots of Jews during this period that this is written to them are trying to tell the story of God's purposes in a way that makes sense to the people around them. They're trying to narrate the story of what's happening. And it's what, if you've read the book of Job, it's what Job's friends do as well, isn't it? Job's friends are saying, I think this has happened because of this, I think this has happened because of this. And they're trying to narrate the story in a way that makes sense in their limited minds, just as we do. So God reminds us, it's his job not our job. He is the author, the perfecter, the narrator. I love that comment. I'm going to hand over to Andrew in, in just a minute, but I love that comment that uh, Dostoevsky makes about the problem of evil. I'll try and say it slowly. I believe that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that, happen, all that has happened. And I'm very aware that the things we've gone through are not a patch on some of the things that the people in this room have gone through or are going through. And I believe that only he can outweigh that. Only he can outweigh the pain with a wonderful harmony that comes at the end. There'll be a finale, a resolution, something that makes sense of everything, but it comes through him. It comes through him, not through us. That responsibility is off our shoulder. We don't have to spin it. We don't have to narrate it. I don't even have to have a fully-fledged testimony ready for next Sunday. I trust him. We trust you, God. We trust you are the storyteller, the author, the perfecter. I'm going to hand over to Andrew.
It's challenging. It's challenging, isn't it? I want to read the, go back to read the, the scripture. I think it's going to appear now on the screen. I just, I, this struck us so much as we were preparing this idea of an author and finisher, a storyteller of God. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself that you will not grow weary and lose heart. One of the things about stories is that you have to know where in the story you are if you're going to be able to make any sense of it. In fact, a story can be brilliantly told, but if you don't know where in it you are, you'll find yourself misunderstanding it and really finding it a very frustrating experience to watch. If you turn a novel open to a random page... It doesn't help, even if it's a brilliantly written novel. You start watching a box set in mid-season. And the whole thing is like, this is rubbish. I hate this thing. And you might have, I, I, know, I heard of one person who went to watch The Fellowship of the Ring and didn't know that there were three Lord of the Rings movies. So they watched it. And you remember the end of that movie is a group of hobbits just paddling off into a river with no resolution of anything. And their evil has not been defeated. And you've never seen Saruman again. And Sauron, the evil eye, is still there. And they've had that whole, what about second breakfast? And then and the whole other night, it's just these hobbits paddling off down a river. And these people were going, this is the most rubbish movie ever. Three hours and it didn't even finish. But that can happen if you, if you don't know where a story's going. If you what the heck's just happened? And that sometimes happens in our lives because we think the story, the timing of the story, the pacing of the story is different from what it actually is. Again, Rachel mentioned, friends, we just because we've been going through it, it's in our minds. I love this moment where Phoebe, one of the characters in Friends, she's, she's, uh, she was brought up and her mom used to fast forward the end of all sad films. So she's grown up to distrust that films ever end like you think they will. And then she watches, they all say, don't worry, Phoebe, we'll cheer you up. Watch It's a Wonderful Life. And she watches It's a Wonderful Life, but runs out of patience halfway through. Because she's like, this is the most terrible film. And she goes, I, I don't know whether I was more happy when he sort of yelled and he shouted and lost his temper. And all of these terrible things happen. It shouldn't be called It's a Wonderful Life. It should be called It's a Sucky Life. And just when you thought it couldn't suck anymore, it does. And it's this wonderful outburst. And you think, some of us do that with our lives. Some of us stop the story saying, this is, what are you doing, Jesus? This, this should be called, it's a sucky life. And if you, I, I, don't, I'm not, I find it hard to believe Romans 8 here. I find it hard to believe Ephesians 1 here. If you saw my day, if you saw what it's like to live with long-term disability, I'm not talking me, I'm saying some of us feel this. Some people who in our church communities who are not even able to be here because of the challenges they face, they think, I don't feel like this has been resolved. I don't feel like... This story is told in the way I wanted it to be told, and it should be called It's a Sucky Life. I don't like it. I want to go home. And that's the same with what God is doing in the world, and it's the same in what God is doing with you. You have to know where in the story you are, and that takes time, and it takes patience and stickability and endurance, if you like. And there's a lot of things about our cultural moment that make that really hard, that probably make it harder than many other people who've lived on planet Earth. They've, they've probably found other things harder than we do. But there are things about now that make the patience of waiting for God's story to unfold at his pace 
very difficult. We have enough to eat. And most people in history haven't. So they're used to living with daily unfulfilled longing. And you and I, anybody here can become very cantankerous when they fast? Like within hours, I don't mean days, I mean hours. You suddenly realize, I am not used to living without what I want now. Yeah, we have microwaves. We live largely, most of us, free from pain, thanks to antibiotics and anesthesia. So when we do experience discomfort, we want it to be sorted straight away. And it usually is. Most of us are richer, have a higher standard of living than our parents did. Or our grandparents did. We have instant tech. We can find out anything we want to know as quickly as we want it. We can cook anything we want as quickly as we want. So when someone tells us to wait for food, for sex, for fulfillment, for educational validation, for career progression, for Wi-Fi. Anybody ever done that thing? I can't believe this thing. I've been waiting a minute and a half to find out information from California. What is happening? And everyone in history is going, hello. And we're going, yeah, I cannot wait. And I find it so hard to, be, to train myself. So when things get difficult and I'm told to wait, I find that very hard. We just need a bit of generational self-awareness. Some of us are old enough to have that because we remember when things weren't like this and we need to know, okay, many generations will have many struggles I don't have. But one of the struggles I do have because I live now is I'm going to find it very difficult to trust and wait when God says this story is not going to resolve yet. There is a race to be run. It's going to take a long time and you have to hang in there. We're conditioned by our culture to think of the story as a 10-minute comic strip. But it's actually a complex, multi-layered epic, and it's going to take a very long time to resolve. And as Rachel's been saying, we live in the middle of it while things are still kicking off, rather than at the end of it when we all live happily ever after. And God knew we will find that hard, so he gave us some images in the New Testament to help us. And two of them are right here in Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. The other two I'm going to mention as well, because I think they will help us too. But four controlling images the New Testament uses to help you and I process the shape of the story that we are in in this world. Image number one, our story is like a race, right? The writer's pretty direct here. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And preachers have said this for centuries. That means it's a long-distance race, which I hate. I like sprinting. I like going as fast as I possibly can. I like the father's race at school. You know, 50 meters I win, go home, or maybe not, but I go home, yeah, yeah, I was really, really fast. I hate the idea of running for mile after mile. Some of you can do it, but I just, the experience of lactic acid here, I just feel like I would, I just feel like somebody is probing my bowels with something very unpleasant. I just don't understand why anyone would voluntarily subject themselves to it. I see these joggers running past me on the street, and I just think, why are you doing this to yourself, you crazy person? This is your day off. And some of you do it, I'm looking at you. But actually, the, the writer to the Hebrews says, that's the kind of thing the Christian life is. It's an endurance race. And many of us know this. We've taught our kids this stuff. But we are in the middle of that race, and the race looks wrong. You know what happens when you, when you watch the 10,000 meters in the Olympics, and you stop it halfway through? Mo Farah's at the back. Like, what's he doing back there? And if you didn't realize it was the middle, and you thought it was the end, you just misunderstand the story of the race. And we do that. If you think a journey is going to be quick and it's long, it's very disappointing. Oh, we're nearly there yet. Are we nearly there yet? 
Anybody have that from kids on their way to this show? Yeah, we're nearly there yet. And you think the only thing that happens is as you get older, you begin to learn, no, we're not nearly there yet. We're not going to be nearly there yet in four hours. Hang in there. It's going to be. And the writer is wanting us to see that. This, this is an endurance race. You've got to hang in there. And because Scripture's framed that way, and that image appears not just here but in Paul as well, it helps us prepare for the, the moment in life you feel like you've just been mugged by reality. And you feel, and this isn't, I mean, we've all had this to some degree. And some of us are going to have it a lot more. I'm sorry to break the bad news. And some of us have lived through a lifetime of it. And actually, the Bible never said, yeah, you're going to get through the finishing tape quickly. You've got to keep going. So the story's like a race. That's the first of the four images. It's like a race. The second image that the writer uses to help us is that the, the story of the world and the story of our struggle against you know, the powers of darkness and the struggle against sin is actually like the gospel itself. That is, it's like the story of Jesus dying and then being dead and then rising again. He said, the writer wants us to draw strength from the example of Jesus that he went through the anguish of Good Friday only because he knew what was going to happen on Easter Sunday and beyond it. And that's the only motivation you have because you can't look at the cross, you're about to go through it and think, yeah, this is no big deal. You look at the, the agony of the cross happening to you and you sweat drop blood. The only thing that can carry a person through is the awareness of what will happen. Fixing our eyes, he says, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, excruciating, literally, as it was, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. But it was because the joy's over there. He's running towards it going, that joy is carrying me through the excruciating, savage, unthinkable pain of what I'm going through now. And the writer is trying to get us to see ourselves in that moment and to say, you need to fix your eyes on him because he knows exactly what it's like to be you. Because he's done that thing where you are facing intolerable suffering and have to look to the future to see the joy that's coming. Otherwise, you can't stand firm in it at all. He's saying, you've got to see your challenges through the lens of Jesus' challenges, because he scorned the temporary shame for the everlasting joy. And it's like he weighed up. You know, when you, you know when you put your hand in front of your face, it makes your hand look bigger than the whole back wall of the room, because it's nearer. And then you, put, you have to put your hand next to the whole back wall. I go, oh, actually, no, my hand is smaller. You know, that, this is the perspective thing. The writer is saying, you've got to do what Jesus did, which is to say, this, as actually Paul puts it this way, doesn't he? This light and momentary affliction is achieving for us this massive weight of glory. And I have to do that. I have Jesus, who for the joy that all of you worshiping Jesus, singing, the grave could not contain the power of his name. And Jesus is going, that's the joy that I wanted when I went to the cross. But it was really hard at the time. And the only thing that carried me through was the motivation of the joy that I would get on the other side of Easter Sunday. Interestingly, later on in the chapter, the writer brings an anti-example, an anti if you like. A, the, the example who was the opposite of what Jesus did. He introduces us to Esau. A few verses later in verse 16, and he structures his verse the exact same way. So he says, Jesus, for the joy, despised the shame. Esau despised the birthright for soup. That's what he says. Esau and Jesus are 
absolute opposites for the writer. He's trying to make that contrast for us. He's saying, you guys can choose today in your difficult stories to be Jesus or Esau. You can look at this wonderful, gleaming bowl of red soup and compare it with your birthright, which is this everlasting benefit. You can contrast the two, and you can decide to go with Esau and say, you know what, I'm going to go for soup. I'm going to go for short-term satisfaction over long-term, everlasting blessing. Or you can look to Jesus, the author and perfecter, who for this everlasting joy said, stuff the shame. It's going to be agony for me, but once it's done, I've got this. And look at the joy. And he wants you to see, actually, all of us are going to be a Jesus or an Esau. And the writer's appealing to them, understand the shape of the story. It's like a race. It's actually kind of like the gospel. You go through terrible suffering to a point, but out the other side, there's everlasting joy for you. That's image number two. Third image the Bible uses, and this doesn't come so much from this part of Hebrews, but you see it a lot in Paul, is that the shape of the story that you and I live in is like a war. Right? You're in a war. And that's a, another image that some of, us, some of us are probably old enough to remember, but most of us have lived largely at peace for our entire lives. But Paul is always telling people, you've got to put on armor, you've got to demolish strongholds, you've got to act like soldiers. Christ's leading you in triumphal procession and all kinds of things like that. And the image is very important for those of us who've lived in peacetime like I have because we find it difficult to imagine what it's like to be at war. And so when things happen to us that are wartime things, we find it very confusing because we're expecting the whole thing to be like, like you know, a holiday. My friend Simon Holly, some of you know him and you may have heard him use this image. He, he, he says, you, you guys as Christians, you were born onto a battleship and not a cruise ship. And you need to know that because if you are on a battleship, then you expect people to be trying to kill you. Whereas if you're born on a cruise ship and anybody gets anywhere near trying to kill you, you're on a cruise ship and you trip up on something, you start yelling. But you expect on a battleship, you think, this is just tight, small fry, I'm not going to worry about that. I actually have two ancestors to make this point. My, my dad was, um, 1956, my dad is on a boat heading from Hong Kong back to England. And he, he's coming up the coast of Africa when the Suez Crisis happens. And so he gets turned around in 1956. He's just about at Egypt, gets turned around and has to go the entire way around Africa in order to get back because there's a bit of an international thing happening at the time. Some of you were there. And uh, in that moment, you imagine there's a lot of very grumpy people on that cruise ship because we were hoping to get home and now we're going to be weeks late. Like this is not a microwave delay. This is like weeks and weeks later than we thought. You get some very, very angry people because he was living in a cruise ship mentality and so was everyone else. Fifteen years before that, my grandfather was on another ship in Southeast Asia, and he was sunk. And he was sunk by the Japanese at the time and ended up being captured by them and went and become a prisoner of war for three and a half years. And his experience of being on a ship was very different from my father's experience on a of being on a ship. Because he's on a ship thinking, I am, this is sink or be sunk. If I get out of this with my life, I will have done well. So I'm not concerned about the fact that it took me six weeks to get home. I would love to have got home in six weeks. It took me three and a half years. And the process wasn't pretty. And the New Testament wants us to see ourselves like my grandpa in that sense, not like my dad. The New Testament wants us to see us that you are in a war and you're at, at fighting all the time up close. The devil is trying to kill you. And you have to see that that's the kind of story you're in. And if you don't get that, a lot of things that happen to you in this world will be very frightening and surprising. So that our culture leads us to believe things will be comfortable, straightforward, instant. Yes, they will. Yes, they will. And the Bible says, no, 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 no. They will not. Please don't be deceived. 
So the, in that sense, the shape of the Christian life is like a race. It's like the gospel. It's like a war. And finally, that's a, that's a sort of rather, you know, kind of manly image. This is a much, actually, in some ways, the most powerful image of them all, I think. The, the, the much more feminine image as well. That actually, the shape of the Christian life is like childbirth. This is what Jesus says about trouble. This is what Paul says about trouble. Jesus says in John 16, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. And by the way, I've been there, and uh, there was some sorrow <laughs> um, because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy. That word again, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I'm going to see you again. And when that happens, your sorrow will turn to joy. Paul uses the same picture of the entire age we're in. He says the whole creation has been groaning together as in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for the redemption of our bodies and our adoption as sons. Do you see the power of the picture? Like this world, I'm sorry, I'm gonna have, I have to dramatize it, okay? But the, this world is like, is you and me and the experience of creation is like in labor. And I'm, gonna, I'm not obviously going to dramatize it fully because I physically could not do that, as many of you know. But there's a sort of straining. It's like, oh, it's passing. It's, oh, oh I, think we, I think we're done. I think the story's over. That's great. There's no more pain and suffering and anguish. Isn't it great? Hallelujah. I can bring my testimony on Sunday. Yeah, the story. Oh, no, here it comes. Another one. Oh, no. What are you doing? How did you get me into this situation? Somebody give me some drugs and all of that. And that happens over and over and over again and you spend your life thinking why is this happening to me what are you do how could what are you sitting there grinning for who in earth in their right mind would think about texting their mother at a moment of anguish like this <laughs> just hypothetically <laughs> and and that goes on for hours and hours and hours and it takes so much longer than the person in labor often so much longer than the person in labor thought that it would and that's strange. Somebody was to take a photo at that moment, and I'm glad to say I did not. Anybody looking at it would say, why would a person go through that voluntarily? If a person knew there was a way out of that, wouldn't they just take it? Why would you do that? It's because they stopped the story too, too soon. And actually, if they then come back six, nine, twelve Hopefully, not that, fun, not that many more hours later. And they come back and they see the woman holding the baby that has come out, the new life that has been born from out of the strain of childbirth. They would say, of course I can see why you do it, because new creation was coming. And you hung in there because you knew it was. You trusted the promises. You believed the midwife. You believed the husband. And you said, I'm going to hang in there because something so beautiful is going to come to pass that it will make it possible to justify all that's happened. And that's the way the Christian story resolves. And that's when the Christian story resolves. Your sorrow turns to joy, and you no longer remember the anguish, and no one can take your joy away. But for now, you're in labor pains, and so am I. And that's the shape of the Christian life, and it's the shape of creation until that day when our sorrow turns to joy forever, and all mourning becomes dancing, and there is no more death, and every tear is wiped away. Brothers and sisters, we are storied people. Right? We live by stories, and we, when things don't work out as we'd hoped, we try and make the story end the way we want it to. And some of the ways that we do that are okay, and they may even be good. But they're never quite enough. 
Right? If your story has meant that you are unexpectedly a carer or bereaved or single or jobless or whatever it may be, long-term, say any number of things, the resolutions that we find, though they may be good, are never enough. And that is because the stories we live in are like races that have not yet crossed the finishing tape and like wars that have not yet been concluded and like childbirth that a baby has not yet been born. They are epic narratives that only resolve when the finish line, the victory surrender, the moment of birth, Easter Sunday actually happens. But they will. We know they will because Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And because his tomb is empty, the tomb of the entire world will be empty as well. In the end, the finishing line gets crossed. The enemy is defeated. New life gets handed to us and sorrow turns to joy. But in the meantime, our job is to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen? I'd like to pray for us, but I wonder, could you stand? I, just, I had a weird word that I feel might be helpful while we're um, singing this, this evening, which I don't always do, don't very often do actually, but I just wanted to see if it can work. I don't know if Nathan and Lou and others could possibly appear, and I'll hand back to Jeremy in a second, but if the band just, that magical appearing thing that the band do, I just, I mean, I imagine we've, in a room this size, we've probably got a handful of people from Liverpool, have we? <laughs> a very noisy handful at that, okay, so, and we may have other people, and I'm sorry, please don't let this destroy the spiritual power of the illustration, um, but some other people who may be supporters of Liverpool Football Club, as I am, even if you are not from Liverpool, please don't turn this into a big moment if you're from Manchester or any other, but there is a moment that I felt, as I was sitting, I was sitting worshipping and I was thinking, I've thought of a number of points of application, but I actually think there is a power to, to the person who is in the middle of a story and doesn't know how it ends and sings anyway. So I want to tell you briefly what happened in 2005. Right, 2005, Liverpool are 3-0 down to AC Milan at half-time. They are playing one of the best football teams that have ever been assembled, and Jimmy Traore was on our team. Uh, we, we, this, in other words, we, were not, we didn't have a hope. 3-0 down, and the most powerful moment of the whole watching the DVD back now is not the fact that we came back to 3-3 and then won on penalties. It's watching the Scousers singing You'll Never Walk Alone at the end at half-time when they're 3-0 down, and they just can't stop singing. And they're just going, you'll never walk alone, walk on, walk on, with hope in your heart. And you're, they can't even sing it in the right rhythm, but they're singing and singing. And they just go round and round and round on loop. And football aside, the image struck, as I was singing, the image struck me, actually anybody can sing when you've already won. But it takes a particular kind of scouser to sing at 3-0 down. And the only reason they do is because they have this strange feeling that they're going to win anyway. And I realized that is, the, that is the position that you and I are to stand in. If the football illustration doesn't help you, Winston, let Winston Churchill help you, right? 7th of December, 1941, Winston Churchill writes in his diary and goes to bed. I can't remember the whole thing because I just thought of it just now, but I can't remember the whole quote. But he, find, he hears the news that the Japanese have bombed Pearl Harbor, and he starts writing in his diary, and he just said, I just heard the news that the Japanese have bombed, America, bombed Pearl Harbor, so I realized we've won the war. We've won it. It's brilliant. I just, he said, it doesn't matter. I, said, I know this is going to take many, many years. I know many people are going to die. 
And by the way, and some of my relatives were some of them, and so were yours. So I don't mean to be blasé about it. But he said, I knew people would die. I knew many, many sufferings lay ahead, but I didn't care because I knew that we were going to win. And actually, he said, oh, we've already won. And so I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. It takes a particular kind of person to sing and sleep when you're 3-0 down or when there's four years of brutal war ahead of you. And Christians are exactly those kinds of people. They're the people who sing on Saturday, not on Sunday. They're the people who sing in this world. We are the people. We were just doing it. We're the people who say, I don't understand how this resolves, but I'm going to sing anyway. The grave could not contain the power of his name. Death you overcame. Once and for all. And all the AC Milan fans are staring at you going, what are you singing about? And your friends at work are singing. You going, what are you singing about? And you say, I don't care. We've won the war. The tomb is empty. Christ has been raised. The grave you overcame. Once and for all. Death could not contain the power of his name. Death you overcame. Once and for all. And they just keep going and keep going because they know, they know, they know that Jesus has won and they will win too. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the certainty of the hope that the resurrection of Jesus guarantees for us. Lord, we don't know how many years worth of challenge lie ahead. We don't know how hard it'll be. Some of us will have immeasurable blessings still to encounter in this life. Hopefully all of us will. Some of us will find immeasurable difficulties ahead. But we know. We know how it ends. We know about the world with no tears. We know about everlasting life. We know about joy unspeakable and full of glory. And we thank you. And we sing now in anticipation and advanced delight of that day. Thank you that you are the author and the finisher of of our faith, who for the joy set before you despised its shame and is seated at the right hand of God. Hallelujah. That was such a shaping word from Rachel and Andrew for us. And this is such a shaping moment right now for our churches together, for our lives. We don't see the end yet we don't see the resolution yet we don't see the end of the story yet but we trust him we choose to trust him though he slay me I will trust him we choose to trust the one who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We choose to trust the one who is the sovereign one. This is warfare tonight. This is the sovereignty of God on display tonight. This is so powerful tonight that the people of God, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of difficulty, even in chains in prison like Paul and Silas can still worship him and say he is the Lord and in whom we put our trust and our confidence and surely goodness and mercy has followed us all the days of our lives. And even if we go through valleys that are like the shadows of death, we trust him. Dear friends, 
This is a holy moment right now. We've got time tonight, but we've got time to wait and to linger. We've got time to worship. I feel the only appropriate response to what Andrew and Rachel have brought us It's not individual ministry. We could spend all night individually ministering to one another. And that's appropriate sometimes. We've done a lot of that the last two evenings. But I feel the appropriate response, just talking to Roger and Ginny and some of the prophetic words that have come earlier that we haven't shared, the appropriate response is for us to worship him. The appropriate response is for us to say, We don't understand, but we do know the one who loves us. We don't get it all. I don't get it. I don't get why Anne and I haven't been able to have children. I don't get why my sister suddenly had a bride. I don't get it. I don't get it at all, but I trust him. I I trust him, and I know his grace is sufficient, and I know that he will ultimately work out all things for his glory and for my good actually, but for his glory, ultimately all things will be resolved. Ultimately all things will be brought together in Christ. Ultimately all things will come, there will be resolution of this. It will come to pass and we choose to trust him. We choose to put our faith and our confidence in the one who has gone before, in the one who endured the cross, in the one who went through the grave and the one who now has been resurrected, the one who now stands at the right hand of the Father on high, the one who still bears the scars and the one who says that he is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Actually, it's in him that we put our trust and we put our confidence. Lord Jesus, it's all about you. It's your story. Andrew didn't know that the theme of this week was be part of the story. Yet they've told their story and they've put us into the big picture story of God. God will resolve the story. But while we wait for him to resolve it, we trust him. And there's real faith tonight in this room. Some are going to get healed. And some are not. Some are going to get resolutions this weekend. And some are not. Some are going to get great breakthroughs this weekend. And we rejoice with those breakthroughs. And some are not. Some are going to be raised to life and some are going to die. This isn't the end. But we stand confident in him. The devil hates it. The world's confused by it. But Jesus loves it. He loves this faith. He loves this faith where we don't understand. We don't get it. But we choose to trust him. And tonight... I believe he's asking us, will you trust me in your story?
Will you trust me in the difficulty? Will you trust me? Will you trust that my grace is sufficient? Will you trust that I'm in control? Will you trust that the sovereignty of God is not just a nice doctrine that's preached, but is truth for you? Will you trust that actually in all of this, his love for you burns with passion? Will you trust that one day you'll look back, one day you'll look back and you'll say, I get it, goodness and mercy did follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I get it, Lord. You were with me all the time. I get it, Lord. You're the author. You're the perfecter. I get it, Lord. Now that's the people of faith. We get that now. We get that assurance now. We don't get the resolution now, but we get the faith now. We get the, the, the sense of God is with us now. It's that we're a people of eternity, and we get some to bring some of that eternal peace, some of that eternal assurance, some of that eternal faith into the world and the difficulties that we're living in right now. We get to be the people of the future living today. That's the kingdom people that we are. And God is bringing that faith. He's molding that faith into us as a people. As we continue to worship, and we're going to worship for the next half an hour or so, we just worship, just worship, just worship, just worship, just worship. Individuals, lost sheep, the one. You're just, God's just going to shine his spotlight on you. He's going to come and you're going to get faith. Because many are going to be healed, actually. Many are going to find breakthroughs. But all of us are going to find faith. All of us are going to find peace. All of us are going to find that he's sovereign, that he's in control, that above all, he is with us. Can you rise to that? Can you rise to that? Can we as a, a family of churches rise to this? And say, we don't get it, Lord. We don't understand. We'd write the story differently. But Lord, you're the author. You're the perfecter. We trust you tonight. Let's just start to tell him, shall we? Let's start to tell him. Maybe if you can't do it in English or in your native language, maybe just sing out in the spirit. Let your heart declare truths. Let your spirit sing out to him. Let your spirit say, I trust you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you. I worship you. You're in control. You're God. You're sovereign. You're mighty. You're magnificent. You're the Lord of it all. You're the author and you're the perfecter.